Was this the day that democracy would die? Lysander stood on the prow of his admiral's ship. He was squinting to see across the straits. 170 other captains were perched on their ships, which were arrayed along the beach next to his, beaks all pointing out to the sea. Sometimes they were looking out with him, sometimes looking at him to see what the Spartan commander would do. He could feel them looking, but he just kept staring out like a praying mantis. This was the fifth day. Today, like the other days, the Athenians sailed the two miles across the water toward them, sailed up with their huge fleet, shouted their insults as they swooped by. Perhaps some of Lysander's men were starting to believe the taunts. Lysander the quail, Spartan cowards, fish bait. But once again, Lysander kept his ships dry on the beach. For a fifth time then, the Democrats sailed back to their side of the straits, to their camp at Egospotomy. But this afternoon, Lysander's captains knew it was different. The Athenians didn't realize it yet. They weren't going to expect what was coming. The mighty Athenians, the lords of the sea, with their high hopes, they would be too proud to even consider the possibility. When the sun was lowering in the west toward the direction he was looking, the sea was bright, blinding almost. It was getting to be a nice time for a nap. But then Lysander began to discern the tiny form of the Spartan reconnaissance boats. His heart beat faster, drowsiness left him in an instant. He watched and waited. And then he suddenly saw a flash coruscating rhythmically from one of the boats. It was the beacon, the distant glint of a polished bronze Spartan shield. Over the waves and the chatter of the sailors, he called out to the seer on the shore, now, and the whole fleet went silent in an instant. It was so quiet that you could hear the sacrificial goat collapse with a lifeless thud at their makeshift altar hundreds of feet away. Everyone watched in stillness as the seer rooted through the entrails of the animal. The man stood up, and then he thrust his bloody hands into the sky. The omens were good. The gods were with them. Lysander closed his eyes. He lifted up his hands, and he called out a short prayer for all the men around him to hear. Castor, Pollux, sons of Zeus, victory. He opened his eyes, and he shouted out, now. Ships slid into the water, oars splashed. The haunting rhythmic drone of the Aulos players rose to a crescendo like a swarm of cicadas, singing out the beat for the rowers. Lysander smiled. This was the day he was going to create a new reality for the Athenians, for all the Greeks, and then maybe for the Persians too. Uh, but the Battle of Aegospotomy was later. Our story picks up several years earlier, in 408 BC. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders. I want these stories to help you become great too. Whether you need inspiration to lead others or 
you need to keep on daring when you face doubters, or if you just want to become a stronger and more resolute person. And I'm making this podcast because I believe that that's why the Greek philosopher Plutarch wrote his parallel lives back in the first and second century AD in the Roman Empire around the days of Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. Plutarch is my inspiration, and he wrote these biographies for people like you. This is part one of three of the life of Lysander of Sparta. Now, when you think of a Spartan today, what do you think of? Is it the 300 Spartan warriors holding off the Persian king and his great army at Thermopylae, sacrificing everything for the freedom of the Greeks? How many schools have you seen that have named their sports programs after the Spartans? There are also Spartan races, Spartan supplements, on and on. If you say the accommodations were Spartan, you mean it was the opposite of a luxury hotel. And you might call someone laconic when they speak few words, yet say much. Laconic comes from Laconia, the home territory of the Spartans. That's how they aimed to talk. And they still inspire us. Their name evokes a certain set of ideals. And they inspired the Romans, too. And to the Greeks and the Persians who knew him, Lysander exemplified the qualities that made the Spartans both admired and feared. He was, of course, brave, tough, terse. He was indifferent to wealth. He obeyed his superiors and he put his city's good fortune above his own personal interests, usually. But he was also clever, inscrutable, conniving, and even ruthless to his enemies. You know, many people find Lysander a difficult man to like. He's usually the bad guy in the great tragedy story that we tell from the perspective of the Athenian Empire. But it was just not Lysander's fate to be born in times of Greek unity, to be unambiguously championing the cause of freedom from foreign tyranny like King Leonidas at Thermopylae. Lysander's duty, instead was to destroy the power of the city of Athens in that great internecine conflict we know today as the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans called it the Athenian War. And it was to this destructive end that Lysander directed his most famous and frightening efforts. And Lysander would not be the sworn enemy of the Persians, but instead their friend. Lysander like his parallel Roman counterpart, Sulla, he was also a brilliant and revolutionary political thinker, a far-seeing man who brought about profound and disruptive change in his world. Both men, Lysander and Sulla, personally catalyzed the end of an old era and the beginning of a new one. And it's hard to imagine that they could have foreseen the consequences of their own actions that anybody could have. Plutarch notes that Aristotle ranked Lysander among the likes of philosophers like Socrates and Plato in some respects. Aristotle famously asked, why is it that people who have become extraordinary in philosophy, politics, poetry, or the arts are quite clearly melancholic? And he cited Lysander specifically as one of his examples of a melancholy man. 
By melancholy here, Aristotle and Plutarch don't mean sad, really, but rather impulsive and unstable. What will we make of Lysander in our age? Well, let's hear his story first. And before we get to the story, a quick announcement. We have a guest narrator for this episode. It's Vincent B. Davis II. Vincent is a best-selling author of, among other works, a series of historical novels based around Rome in the time of Sertorius and Gaius Marius. And I found out about him and his work when I was doing my own research on the life of Sertorius, and I read his Man with Two Names, which is the first book in Vincent's series in which Sertorius is the main character. It's called the Sertorius Scrolls. And I really enjoyed it, and it helped me get into the period imaginatively, thinking through all the relationships and all the characters, and I must say, impressively researched. It's great stuff. So he's a Rome guy, but he tells me that he particularly enjoyed our Life of Eumenes of Cardia on this podcast, and that is, of course, Sertorius's parallel Greek counterpart. You can find out about Vincent's work, his books, on Amazon. Links will be in the show notes, uh, also to his website, Go to his website on your own at vincentbdavisii.com. That's Vincent B. Davis II in Roman numerals, as it should be. So thanks for joining us, Vincent, and thanks for being a fan of The Cost of Glory. Okay, on to the story. The war with the Athenians was in its 24th year, and that, in 408 BC, was the year that Lysander is appointed Admiral of the Spartan Fleet, or Navarch which means commander of the ships in Greek. It's the first time most Greeks have ever heard of him. Now, Lysander's first major task as Navarch is to make friends with a young man. Well, he was hardly more than a boy, really. He was 16 years old. But this boy could make a huge difference in the war. The kid's name was Cyrus, and he was the son of Darius, the king of Persia. Lysander sets out from the city of Ephesus to meet Cyrus. Ephesus is in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Asia Minor juts out like a fist into the eastern Mediterranean, and the Greeks just called it Asia. And the body of water that runs alongside the west coast of Asia, the knuckles of that fist, as it were, is called the Aegean Sea. And on the other side of that sea, about 150 miles away to the west, is Greece. And in between, it's filled with islands. Ephesus is a great Greek city, sitting on the coast of Asia, a little south of the midpoint. There are Greek cities all along the coast, centuries old by the time of our story. And the Greeks there call themselves Ionians, which is actually where the Persians and Hebrews and other Eastern peoples get their word for the Greeks, Yunnan. But these Greeks of Ionia aren't in quite the same situation as the independent Greek city-states on the other side of the water, cities like Athens, Sparta, Thebes, and Corinth on the mainland of Greece. These cities of Asia, like Ephesus, Miletus, Smyrna, even though they remain culturally and ethnically Greek, for a century and a half at this point, they've been ruled by the Persian king who lives far off in the east. They pay taxes to him, tribute. The great king now is very interested in this war among the Greeks. Because the conflict between Athens and Sparta, the two most powerful Greek cities, has dragged almost the entire Greek world into the conflict. 
hundreds of independent city-states on land and on the islands have been forced to pick sides, to ally with one or the other. It's not a war between cities, really, but a war between large coalitions led by Athens and Sparta. Cities who have tried to remain neutral get pressured. Some get the stick, like the poor island of Milos, after the Melians debated with the Athenians trying to stay neutral. It ended horribly. Some got the carrot, though. The Athenians have promised now to liberate cities like Ephesus, Miletus, and Smyrna from the tyranny, as they say, of the Persians and their taxes, if they will join Athens's cause. And this is a promise that they're not necessarily able to keep long-term, but tax revenues are nonetheless getting seriously disrupted, and that's why the king of Persia has gotten irritated. And so an amazing thing has happened recently, four years before Lysander's story begins. With the king's authorization, the local Persian governor reached out to the Spartans. The Persians and the Spartans share a common enemy, Athens. If Sparta would help the Persians recover their control over the rich Greek cities of the west coast of Asia, King Darius would in return provide the Spartans with enough funding to build a naval fleet that could challenge Athenian maritime supremacy. He would help them break the stalemate after so many years. And in a controversial move, the Spartans accepted. To understand the significance of this, you have to understand a little bit of the backstory. When the Spartans took the Persian gold, many of the Greeks thought, oh, how the mighty have fallen. The noble warriors that had once fought off the king's hordes at Thermopylae are now selling their loyalty to him and trading the freedom of their fellow Greeks for Persian gold. And that was the story that the Athenians were spreading around the Aegean Sea. But it wasn't sticking that well everywhere because others would say, well, Thermopylae and the Great Persian War, the struggle against tyranny, that was almost 70 years ago, 481 BC. And the real threat to Greek freedom these days wasn't the Persians, it was the Athenians themselves. Because, well, during that great and noble Persian war, Athens and Sparta led a coalition that united various Greek city-states to drive out the barbarians. But afterwards, that unity had dissolved pretty quickly. The Athenians, after the war, with their great harbors and seafaring skills, they volunteered to lead a league of Greeks to carry on naval skirmishes and missions of harassment against the Persians to ensure that those barbarians, as they called them, would never even think about returning. But over time, in those heady days, the Athenians turned their position in the alliance from first among equals into lords of subjects. And then with a combination of trickery and strong-arming tactics, they took the League's common funds, money supposedly to pay for the ongoing military operations, and they made it into their personal treasure trove. How else could they fund the Parthenon and the many other temples and monuments on the Acropolis and throughout the city? And whenever some ally tried to leave the League, they were bullied into returning. The allies had become subjects, paying tribute to the people of Athens, who were the real tyrants. That was the Spartan perspective. And we'll look more into the causes of the war and the biographies of Athenians like Cimon and Nicias, and especially Pericles. But the Spartans had a point. 
The current war broke out after blatant Athenian imperial expansionism provoked so many Greek cities that the ever-cautious Spartans could no longer ignore the insistent demands of their Peloponnesian allies. And so they finally undertook to lead them in a war against proud Athens in 431 BC. And the question from the beginning was, which city would lead the Greek world? And not just that, but which city's vision and values and even which city's version of history would lead the Greek world? So yes, in 412 BC, 19 years into the war, the war we know today as the Peloponnesian War. And by the way, that comes from Peloponnese, which is the name of the peninsula that Sparta and most of its allies were located in. In 412 BC, yes, the Spartans accepted the Persian king's offer of alliance. And that was four years before Lysander's appointment as admiral of the fleet. Before that point, the post of admiral, Navarch, was not so important. Sparta was a land power, the best infantry soldiers in the known world at the time. But the Spartans had finally admitted that in order to win the war, they needed to beat the Athenians at their own game, that is, to dominate the seas. Athens was a walled city with a port, and they could hold out indefinitely if they could just keep supplying their city from the sea. And as long as they could do that, they could terrorize everyone with their piratical assaults throughout the Aegean. Hence, the importance of Persian gold. For example, just a year before, it was looking like the Athenians were doomed after a massive failed expedition to Sicily. But now they were resurging, reasserting control in the Aegean. It was amazing. As long as there was an ounce of hope left, the Athenians would find some way to rebound. Like a many-headed hydra, you lop off one head of that rich naval state, and two more grow back to take its place. The Peloponnesians had to build a fleet to cut off the seas permanently. But ships were expensive, and Sparta was not rich. Hence the importance of Persian gold. But things weren't going well. The money wasn't coming. There were always excuses and the delays were very costly. In 410, the Spartan Senate received a characteristically laconic military dispatch from the Asian front. The message concerned the fleet and the admiral, who was at that time the Navarch Minderus. It read, ships gone, Minderus dead, men starving, don't know what to do. The entire fleet was just destroyed at Cyzicus in a battle with the Athenians. And things were looking grim when they put Lysander in charge of the fleet in 408 BC. Now, Lysander has been in this war for a while, and he has identified the problem. The Persians' stinginess over the past four years has very much to do with the local Persian governor, Tissaphernes. Tissaphernes took the view that the best thing for the Persians is that the Spartans get just enough aid so that both sides will grind each other down and weaken the other, and neither will ever win. In other words, Tissaphernes wants an interminable stalemate. And this problem is why Lysander is now traveling from Ephesus to meet Prince Cyrus, the son of the Persian king. But he doesn't have to go all the way to Babylon or Susa. Cyrus has just moved his residence down to Sardis in Asia, which is near the coast, just over the next valley to the north from Ephesus, in fact. He's just arrived, and Lysander has learned that Cyrus came specifically to sort out the Sparta-Persia agreement. 
and possibly he's open to putting it on better footing. When he arrives at Cyrus's court, he's prepared for a difficult conversation. He stands before the 16-year-old prince and makes his case. And here's what Plutarch says. Lysander accused Tissaphernes, who, though he was commissioned to aid the Spartans and drive the Athenians from the sea, seemed to be remiss in his duty, showing lack of zeal and destroying the efficiency of the fleet by the meager subsidies which he gave. Now Cyrus was well pleased that Tissaphernes, who was a base man and privately at feud with him, should be accused and maligned. By this means then, as well as by his behavior in general, Lysander made himself agreeable, and by the submissive difference of his conversation, above all else, he won the heart of the young prince and roused him to prosecute the war with vigor. At a banquet which Cyrus gave him as he was about to depart, the prince begged him not to reject the tokens of his friendliness, but to ask plainly for whatever he desired, since nothing whatsoever would be refused him. Nothing whatsoever would be refused him? Well, Lysander at this point goes, Well, since you insist, my lord, and he takes the opportunity to negotiate a 33% daily wage increase for his sailors, from three obols to four obols a day. And this was important because a lot of the sailors in the war at this time are basically mercenaries. Athenian sailors would be lucky to get three obols, which isn't all that much, mind you, but four a day. At that rate, Lysander can drain off oarsmen from the Athenians. And Cyrus gladly agrees. He supplies Lysander with 500 talents of money, which is the monetary equivalent of about three tons worth of silver. But this fortune was denominated in the signature Persian coin, the Golden Derrick. Now, Lysander really put on the charm there, but Cyrus seemed like he was already very eager to help the Spartans. Xenophon, another ancient source, adds that it was at this meeting that Cyrus offered, if it was necessary, that he would chop up the very throne he was sitting on, which was made of gold and silver, and have it minted into coins to distribute to the Peloponnesian sailors. Cyrus clearly wanted to be friends with the Spartans. Lysander could sense the young man's ambition. Perhaps he sensed, even then, that this kid had something he needed. Cyrus wasn't giving any hints to his ulterior motives then, but he had big plans for the throne of Persia. But we'll get to that later. For now, Lysander took special care to make sure that they became long-term friends. Was it so far-fetched to imagine that a Spartan commander could be even a sort of mentor to a Persian prince? Well, this wasn't Lysander's first time charming an ambitious young man of higher social rank. He could think back to his experiences growing up in Sparta. Now, Lysander was born into one of the respectable families at Sparta, they had connections to one of the Spartan royal houses. But when he was growing up, maybe his family had fallen on hard times. It's not really clear. But they couldn't afford to put him through the Spartan state military education system, the famous Agoge. They had to find a patron to pay his tuition and sponsor him. And so they found a family friend, someone wealthy and well-connected, who saw potential in young Lysander. Now, when a boy had to have a sponsor to send him through the Agoge, either because he wasn't wealthy enough or because he wasn't born into the right family, 
The Spartans called him a Mothox, and Lysander was one of these, a Mothox. But he got over the stigma by working hard at his training, proving himself to be tougher and smarter and, well, more Spartan than most of the other boys. And Lysander was tough. You had to be to make it through their grueling training. We'll have to go into more detail in another episode. But Lysander was no brute soldier. When he needed to be, he could be extremely charismatic. And in their years of the Agoge, he used his charm to win his way into the heart of a very ambitious younger man from the Spartan royal family, a man named Agesilaus, became his mentor and confidant. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. That's for later in the story. So, Lysander returns to Ephesus with his good news and with Cyrus's money. He's already made Ephesus his base of operations, and now he's made it the city that all commerce comes through, the city that wins the military supply contracts. And by the way, in Plutarch's day in the first century AD, some 400 years later, Ephesus was one of the great cities of Asia, very wealthy, and there was an early Christian community there. St. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and Plutarch says that it was really Lysander's patronage of Ephesus that gave it its start as a great city, that it was not an outstanding place back then. So then from Ephesus, Lysander is calling out to all the wealthiest men of all the surrounding Ionian cities and islands, Miletus, Colophon, Chios, He's making good friends among them. He's working on getting the most wealthy, powerful men within each city, just a handful, around 10 or so in every city, to reconcile their differences. And he starts making these groups of men promises. If they will up their contributions to the Peloponnesian war effort, supply ships, money, men, then he will reward them very handsomely when they finally defeat the Athenian tyrants. Many of these men were from democracies, but why should men so worthy be subject to the whims of the mob? Men who had common interests, men of culture and sophistication and good business sense, who were patriots and only wanted the best for their cities. Athens has a record of interfering in local politics, fomenting democratic uprisings in cities ruled by aristocracies. And the Spartans, who have an aristocratic government, a tight military oligarchy, well, they preferred to see that their allied states were governed by men that they could count on, which meant men committing to suppressing the base instincts of a city mob. And so, if Sparta wins the war, shouldn't Sparta support these worthiest men to rule their home cities, men who contributed the most to the war effort, help them neutralize the opposition? Well, with these kinds of promises, Lysander wins these rich men over, and they double up on their contributions. And within a few months, he's put together a powerful new fleet, ex nihilo, 90 ships. And so they've got a fleet and funding for sailors from the Persian gold. And it all comes just in time, because the Athenians were resurging these days. They have the most dangerous man in the Aegean back fighting on their side. He's the commander responsible for annihilating Mindarus and the Spartan fleet at Cyzicus. 
His name is Alcibiades. Alcibiades is the man to beat. Now, many people felt that the real culprit to blame for this war was the general populace of the Athenian democracy, the citizen mob. It was those men in their democratic assemblies who voted to expand their greedy empire in the first place. It was those men who had voted to tear up a major peace agreement between Sparta and Athens several years ago. But the masses were helpless in war and diplomacy without effective men to lead them where they wanted to go. And Alcibiades was their best commander and diplomat by far. A paradoxical man, the noblest aristocrat and the most cunning demagogue at the same time. He was responsible for leading the charge to reopen the war with Sparta after that failed peace treaty. And Lysander could personally recall very well how a few years earlier, after Alcibiades had gotten them back in the war, his jealous enemies at home in Athens prosecuted him and got him exiled. Because after that happened, Alcibiades changed sides. And he actually came to Sparta and started advising them on how to defeat the Athenians. Alcibiades charmed the Spartans. He put on their manners and wore simple clothes, started acting deferently. He charmed them so much he even had an affair with the wife of one of the Spartan kings. But the Spartans eventually lost their patience with Alcibiades and they chased him out. But by the time Lysander was made Navarch, Alcibiades had talked himself back into a command post on the Athenian side. Once again, he was promising them victory. So these are the two rival commanders now. Lysander knows Alcibiades quite well. He knows the kind of talent he's up against. He knows a battle is imminent somewhere. Alcibiades is desperate to score some points for the Athenians. He needs to prove he's still useful to them. And his fleet is hemorrhaging oarsmen now. Again, many of them are just mercenaries, and they're coming to Lysander for higher pay. So Lysander has got his ships beached in the port of Ephesus. And soon, as expected, Alcibiades comes sailing up with his war fleet, 80 ships to Lysander's 90. Lysander knows how much Alcibiades needs this battle, but he also knows how experienced the Athenian navy is. Even if he's got the edge in numbers now, battle would be a big risk. And so, when Alcibiades sweeps into the port of Ephesus with his war fleet, Lysander keeps his ships on the beach. Alcibiades taunts, terrorizes, shoots a few arrows. The people of Ephesus watch on the ramparts. Lysander stays put. This goes on for a while. And by the way, it's a foretaste of Lysander's big event. But now after a few weeks of no action, Lysander gets word from some deserters that Alcibiades has taken a detachment of his best ships and sailed up north on some raiding mission. He left the bulk of the Athenian fleet stationed at a nearby city called Notion. That's a little ways up the coast from Ephesus to the northwest. Alcibiades left his personal helmsman in charge, a man named Antiochus, the guy who actually steered his captain's ship. But Antiochus has strict orders not to attack Lysander's ships. But soon, Lysander sees 
10 ships sailing into the port of Ephesus, again, trying to taunt them. This Antiochus disobeyed. He thinks he knows better than his commander. Typical Athenian, no discipline. It looks like Antiochus wants to bait the Spartans to send out a small detachment of their own and then lure them away and destroy them with the full Athenian fleet. How clever. Well, Lysander judges that this is the moment to accomplish something worthy of Sparta. He launches all his triremes. The trireme battleship is the cutting edge of naval technology at that time. It's a long, narrow ship. It's powered by three stories of oarsmen on either side. That's where the word trireme comes from. It literally means three oars in Greek. The ship's main weapon is a large bronze-tipped beak attached to the prow of the ship lurking just below the waterline. And the goal was to ram this beak and all 50 tons of ship and sailors behind it at full speed, like a torpedo, into the side of another trireme and thereby sink or disable the other ship. Now, Lysander identifies the lead ship, Antiochus's ship, and he sends his fastest triremes on it, and they concentrate and they sink it. And then, with his full armada, he chases the other nine, they're now leaderless, and they get in sight of the Athenian fleet who are stationed at Notion and are totally not prepared for an all-out assault, and when they finally realize what's happening, the Athenian captains all hurry to get their ships in the water. But before they can pick up any speed or make any proper formations, the rest of the Spartan fleet crashes into them. And by the end of the day, the Athenian fleet has taken a huge hit. They've lost 22 vessels, and the Spartans, none. Lysander sails back the short distance to Ephesus for a celebration. The war is by no means over, but he has just accomplished what no Spartan commander has ever done. He has defeated the Athenians handily at sea. What's more, he defeated Alcibiades without Alcibiades even being there. Lysander knows the way that Athens worked. The rest of the Greeks always knew what was going on in Athenian politics. Unlike Sparta, the Athenians were pretty much an open book. And this defeat was very bad for Alcibiades because word was going to get home quickly. Spartans defeat Athenians at Battle of Notion. There'd be shock, horror, and then rage. Who was responsible? Who let this happen? And there'd be finger pointing and recriminations. But the blame would eventually land on Alcibiades. His enemies at home were going to make sure of it. He had many of them envious men, always scanning the political and military situation for his weak points, like spiteful hyenas. And indeed, very soon the inevitable happened. The Athenian democracy voted to replace Alcibiades. They scratched his name off their list of 10 generals for the following year. Well, Alcibiades refused to go back home. He knew what the mob might do to him there. He went and retired in a castle that he had built in Thrace, which is a region just across the straits north from Asia Minor. It was incredible, though. Once again, the Athenians simply could not restrain themselves. In the heat of the moment, in their anger, for a second time, they alienated their best leader, cast their finest weapon into a ditch. You couldn't just do that at Sparta. 
The Spartans, or the Lacedaemonians as they're often called, they were ruled by a supreme senate of 30 elders, men 60 and older, the Gerousia. These guys were elected out of the most respected and battle-tested men of the city for life terms. And say what you will about their difficulties conceiving of great political creative possibilities or adapting to changing circumstances, the Gerousia at least could be relied on to restrain envy, to not capriciously destroy Sparta's greatest generals the moment they faced setbacks. Well, after the Battle of Notion, the Athenians were humbled, but they were angry and every bit as dangerous. But now Lysander's term was up too, he was the admiral, the navarch, the commander of the fleet, appointed by the Gerousia for a single year, and it was illegal for anyone in Sparta to serve in that office twice. And this made sense, in the past at least, because, as we already mentioned, the navarch hadn't really been an important office at Sparta until this war, and rather late in it. And this was a very new and unusual situation for the Spartan state to deal with, having the navarch be really important. And you could usefully contrast the office of Navarch with the most important office in Sparta, if you can really call it an office, and that was the kingship. Sparta was a land power, really, and the kings were the commanders of the Lacedaemonian land army. There were two hereditary kings, each drawn from one of the two rival royal families. And really, these kings were the commanders of a large confederacy of Peloponnesian allies that Sparta stood at the head of as kind of an elite contingent of uh, special forces. Now, for any given campaign, one of the kings got appointed to command the expedition, and the other would generally stay home. But the kings were really land specialists, and the Spartans didn't want them to be sailing around in ships, risking their lives. It wasn't their skill set either. So at sea, the Spartans appointed navarchs, and one of the kings right now was camped in a fort 14 miles from the walls of Athens, pinning them in their city, a sort of permanent low-level siege. That was an important role to play. But at this stage of the war, all the actual fighting was being done at sea. And everything would really be decided in this war, and victory would be determined not by the actions of the kings of Sparta, but by the Navarch. Shouldn't they put their best man in that office? But, all the same, Lysander's term was up. And so, the Gerousia sends out Lysander's replacement. His name is Callicratidas, a man as stubborn as Lysander was sly. And there's actually a story, by the way, about Lysander on this point. The Spartan citizenry were supposed to be descendants of Hercules back in mythic times. And Hercules famously slayed a giant lion, the lion of Nemea, and he wore the lion's pelt on his back. And there are statues of him like this with the lion's head helmet and the pelt reaching down his back. And the lion is a very straightforward animal, courageous and powerful. Well, someone told Lysander one day that using scheming and trickery in warfare was unbefitting of a descendant of Hercules and Lysander replied, In the places where the lion's skin does not reach, it must be patched up with the pelt of a fox. Well, Callicratidas was the sort of man who might have been on the other side of that conversation with Lysander. 
a straightforward, just man, not an ounce of fox in him. And moreover, Callicratidas seemed to think that a Spartan commander should treat all men equally and not show favor to certain ten-man oligarchic cabals just because they were allies. And this was quite a change from Lysander, who by then was already starting to get notorious for favoring his personal friends at almost any cost. Callicratidas, once he's made Navarch, he soon finds that the rich leading men of the cities are always coming up with their war support late and half-heartedly, and they're giving him various excuses. And moreover, Callicratidas had already hinted that he thought this whole taking money from some barbarian king thing was degrading to the majesty of Sparta. But now he has little choice. Callicratidas goes up to Sardis to see Prince Cyrus to ask for more money. But when he gets there, he's told Cyrus is busy. Busy? Yes, he's drinking with his friends. Come back later. And Callicratidas says, I'll wait. And he waits at Sardis two whole days, listening to various excuses, before he realizes that Cyrus has no intention of seeing him. None of the Spartan allies anywhere want to talk to any Spartan except Lysander. Callicratidas leaves dejected and returns to his camp and he curses the evil fortune that's made Greeks wage war on each other rather than their natural enemies, the Persians. They should be toppling the power of the Persian king and not begging his son for money. He swears that when he gets back to Sparta after his term as Navarch, He's going to do everything in his power to broker a peace agreement between the warring states. But the gods were not going to hold Callicratidas to that oath. He managed to scrape together some funds from his reluctant allies, and a few months later, he's inflicted some substantial reverses on the Athenians. He's trapped some of their ships. But this provokes them in their desperation to man a huge fleet including many slaves that they lured into the navy with the promise of freedom. And the Athenians confront the Spartan alliance in a great battle off the northwest coast of Asia Minor, near the island of Lesbos. And the battle came to take its name from a small group of islands nearby called Argonusai. And as Callicratidas lined up his fleet in attack formation, his helmsman is said to have approached him and said, Sir, the ships of the Athenians outnumber our own. It would be best to flee. And Callicratidas responded, To flee, my friend, would be the worst for Sparta, for it is shameful. It would be best to win or to die. And so he spurred his ships forward. The Athenians ended up scoring a massive naval victory at Argonusai, practically annihilating the Spartan fleet. Callicratidas's ship was lost. His body was never found. Now, at this point, you'd think that the Spartans and their allies would be in very big trouble. The battle at Argonusai was one of the most decisive Athenian naval victories of the whole war. But then, something strange happened. Because after the battle, the Athenian generals had to make a tough call. Triremes were unusually buoyant by our standards. They had very little ballast and they were very slow to sink. 
And so what was usually expected after a battle was for the victors, if they could, to sail in and rescue their comrades who were clinging to the floating wreckages. The Athenians had 25 ships after the battle that were disabled like this. But then a large and violent storm blew up that afternoon. You have to imagine heavy winds and large waves and driving rain. And Well, the generals decided that it was just too dangerous or maybe even impossible to rescue their men. And so most of those crews drowned. Word gets back to Athens about the victory and the tragedy at the same time. And the citizens have a lot of time to imagine their brothers and cousins and fathers and friends, their countrymen waiting for their comrades to rescue them as the sky darkened, slowly losing hope and succumbing to the exhaustion from trying to stay afloat, dying what Greeks considered the worst of deaths, a death without burial, a death without funeral rites, into the dim oblivion without leaving a trace. When the generals return home to give an account of what had happened, demagogues see an opportunity to eliminate their rival fellow citizens. And with their speeches, they get the people of Athens even more enraged. There's no reasonable explanation that can soothe the people's anguish. And the assembly votes to try the generals as a block in a single mass trial. And whoever narrated these events afterwards to the incredulous Spartans must have reminded them that to try citizens en masse was a clear breach of legal protocol at Athens. Every citizen was supposed to have his chance to defend himself individually. But there's one man who stands against the vote. He happens to be chair of the assembly for that day, and he refuses to put the motion to vote. The mob shouts and throws things at him. They threaten to beat him to death, but he stands firm. The man's name was Socrates. He was one of those so-called philosophers. And yes, that is the Socrates you've heard of. Well, the Athenian mob is furious, but then they realize that they can just wait till the next day, till the man's one-day term expires. And so they do, and then they have their way. Six of their finest leaders are condemned and immediately executed, including the only son of their late great leader, Pericles. And when he heard all of this, Lysander must have been astonished. First, Alcibiades chased out of Athenian affairs for a second time, and now nearly their entire panel of top naval commanders, the men who had just crushed the Spartans' fleet, executed. For what? To punish an act of God? To satisfy their anger? What did they possibly hope to gain from this? It was difficult to top the many other bad calls that the Athenian assembly had made, but this was by far the most irrational decision they had taken in the entire war. The Athenian mob was its own worst enemy, and a few days later, they started to feel bad. It was too late by then, but they made that demagogue who actually carried out the prosecution into an outlaw, and he starved to death. But such capriciousness, such inconsistency, such indiscipline... When you look at what that body was capable of, the sovereign Athenian assembly, how could Sparta possibly treat Athens as a rational actor in any negotiation they might have? 
How can you trust a state ruled by a mob of men who cannot even rule their own minds? Well, the chaos at Athens becomes a godsend for the Lacedaemonians. It helps them to regain the initiative. In the wake of the defeat, letters and embassies from Sparta's allies start pouring in to Lacedaemon, which is what the Spartans call their homeland. They address the Gerousia, the Spartan Supreme Council. And I'm going to bring in another keen analyst of ancient Greek politics to explain here what happened next. This is the early U.S. statesman and founding father Alexander Hamilton from Federalist Paper Number 25. Hamilton says, quote, It was a fundamental maxim of the Lacedaemonian Commonwealth, that is, the Spartan Constitution, that the post of admiral should not be conferred twice on the same person. The Peloponnesian Confederates, having suffered a severe defeat at sea from the Athenians, demanded Lysander, who had before served with success in that capacity, to command the combined fleets. The Lacedaemonians, to gratify their allies and yet preserve the semblance of an adherence to their ancient institutions, had recourse to the flimsy subterfuge of investing Lysander with the real power of admiral under the nominal title of vice-admiral. End quote. Hamilton, a very careful reader of Plutarch's lives, and at that point in 1787, he was very preoccupied with the terms under which confederated states levied and controlled armies and navies. And more from him on Lysander later. But yes, that's what happened. The Allies are demanding it, writing in, and even Prince Cyrus sends a letter to this effect. The preference of the very throne of Persia is Lysander as admiral. So the Gerousia bends its rules a little bit and they observe the letter of the law, ignore the spirit, and they make Lysander vice navarch. Some other guy is actually admiral, but Lysander holds the real power. And many observers suspected that Lysander was not at all surprised by this development and that he had helped coordinate the support of his friends. But now at this point, Lysander has a clear vision of what has to be done. Athens is effectively enduring a long siege. They can't farm their land very effectively with the Spartan troops roaming in their countryside, making forays out of their stronghold. So most of the Athenians are holed up in the walls of the city and the sea is their only hope. And as long as they have this hope, the Athenian mob will never stop terrorizing the other Greeks with their reckless imperialist policies. They'll never stop toppling sound governments and installing their democracies. In other words, their own mob-pandering cronies. They'll never let anyone rest. But Lysander sees the key to taming the mob is through their bellies. And there was a weak point in the food supply. The Athenians bring in the majority of the city's calories from the rich grain fields of a region that they know as the land of the Scythians on the shores of the Black Sea, in particular a region we know as the Crimea and the southern parts of the Ukraine. And in order to get grain from the Black Sea into the Aegean, Athenian shippers have to cross a narrow strait some 30 miles long and at its narrowest point the strait is less than a mile wide. It was called the Hellespont, the modern Dardanelles. And it was there that Lysander aimed to crush the hope of the Athenians, to choke off their grain supplies, 
and bring the city to its knees once and for all. The rich Athenians will always find a way to eat, but the helpless poor will starve and they'll vote with their guts and sue for peace. And so Lysander returns to Ephesus and he sends word all around to his friends in the various cities and islands, Lysander's back and he needs you. And then he goes up to visit his most important ally, Prince Cyrus, who is still serving as governor of these lands in Asia, or satrap, as the Persians called their governors. And the two greet each other warmly. Lysander and Cyrus walk and talk. And Cyrus takes his Spartan friend through the gorgeous private royal garden, the Paradesos, or paradise. And that's where we get our word paradise. And as Lysander later recounted to the Athenian Xenophon, in the Paradesos, and by the way, it was such a rare honor for a Greek or anyone to be admitted to a Persian royal garden, Cyrus tells Lysander how many of these lush and exotic plants Cyrus selected himself and personally laid them in the ground with his own hands. And Lysander is amazed and he pronounces the prince truly most blessed among men. But then they turn to business, and Cyrus notifies Lysander that he will be leaving. He is going to entrust all the tax revenues of the rich Persian province of Asia to Lysander to underwrite the war effort. He's going to leave all surplus military forces in Lysander's personal command. He's making Lysander effectively a vice satrap of the province. Where is he going? His father, the king, Darius, is growing ill back in Persia. It looks like this might be the end. Cyrus needs to be there. His brother will be there as well. There might be business to settle. Well, so be it. But as a result of this, Lysander at this moment had more power at his personal disposal than any Spartan commander had ever had, really more than any Greek had ever had. And maybe it was at this point that Lysander started to think those greater thoughts about himself that he later became famous for, the kind of thoughts a Spartan wasn't supposed to think. More on that later. For now, Lysander's power, though, is quite precarious. He has to defeat the Athenians' navy if he wants any chance of holding on to that power. And he really has to do this before his term is up. So he gets to work. He sails around the Aegean, capturing recalcitrant cities, requisitioning ships, building up a force to match Athens's fleet of 180 warships. And within a few months, he's ready. He's got 170 triremes of his own, which is very impressive in such a short period of time. But he has one more stop to make. Lysander sails his entire armada all the way to Athens, right in front of the eyes of the entire population, who are mostly cringing behind their walls. And he disembarks nearby, and he marches inland toward the Spartan fort. It was at a place called Decalea. That's the stronghold from which the Spartans are terrorizing the Athenian countryside. And the Spartan commander there, King Agus himself, comes down to the plain, and they meet for a parley. 
Nobody knows for sure what they discussed, and maybe it's not all that important. What was certainly important for Lysander was that King Agus and all the Spartan warrior nobles who were manning the fort, all those men who grew up with him, who went through the Agoge with him, men who took their turn beating him when he stepped out of line, younger men that he had whipped too, anyone in there who doubted that this Mothox would ever become a leader. He wanted them all to see that Lysander met a Spartan king in the field as a peer, maybe even more than a peer, because the forces that he had at his command dwarfed the fort garrison that King Agus was commanding. And he wanted the Athenians to see this too. And he needs the Athenians to watch Peloponnesian ships sail around their seas, glide past their sacred harbors arrogantly, as if they owned the place. He wants them to be afraid and to get angry. He needs them angry. He needs them to commit fully to what's coming. And then when he hears that the Athenian fleet is approaching, he knows it's time, and he leaves and heads for the Hellespont Straits. Lysander sails to Lampsacus, that's one of the Athenian allied cities that overlooks the straits on the Asian side, and he captures it easily. He makes its harbor his base. He can now threaten all shipping traffic coming in and out of the Black Sea. Lysander wants to force an engagement. And sure enough, the Athenians soon arrive with their full 180-ship fleet. And they beach their ships on a strand on the European side that was surrounded by miles of open country. The spot was called Egospotami. In Greek, that means rivers of the goat. It was directly opposite Lysander's base. And it just so happened that the private castle where Alcibiades was now residing was very near to Egospotami. Alcibiades, once the greatest Athenian of his day, now in exile, victim of the envy of his enemies, he sees an opportunity. He rides down to the Athenian fleet. Alcibiades asks to speak with the generals. The Athenians are being commanded by a panel of five generals. Each one enjoys the supreme command for one day at a time, and they rotate. Alcibiades tries to warn them. Can't you see? Lysander is stationed in a proper city harbor, the harbor of Lampsacus. His men can rest and resupply practically at their own base. You, however, are camped several miles from the nearest city, Sestos. Each day, your men have to walk several miles to Sestos to resupply. And there's no breakwater. The ships are exposed, and it's a rough ground to camp on. Why not move yourselves down the coast to Sestos? Alcibiades even offers that, well, he happens to have personally recruited thousands of Thracian cavalry and many soldiers and archers too. And if the Athenians will give him a share in the command, he will cross his men over to Asia and either force Lysander out of his secure base or engage him in a land battle. Now, what would you have done if you were an Athenian naval commander there? Well, the commanders in their hearts, they know that if Alcibiades' ploy works, he's going to get all the credit. And if it fails, 
they'll get all the blame in front of another angry Athenian mob. And so the generals decide to send him away with a rude gesture. Athens has had enough of Alcibiades, don't you think? They don't need his advice. So that day, Alcibiades departed from the company of his Athenian countrymen for the last time, suspecting some treachery was afoot, as Plutarch adds. And so the Athenians sail out from their base in the morning. They sail the two miles across the straits, pass in front of Lysander's boats, inviting him to fight, shouting their taunts, shooting their arrows. They make many passes, but Lysander won't engage. They return to their beach in the afternoon, park ships, and scatter their forces to the countryside to find supplies. The next day they sail out, sail across, pass in front of Lysander's boats, inviting him to fight, shouting their taunts, shooting their arrows. They make many passes. No response. A third day they sail out, sail across, pass in front of Lysander's boats, invite him to fight, shout their taunts, shoot their arrows. Nothing. And they do the whole routine once again, a fourth day. But now each day, as the Athenians sail back, Lysander has been sending a couple of spy boats to go across and watch what they're doing and report back. And they see the Athenians are getting sloppier and sloppier, sending their men further out into the countryside. They're coming back later with less discipline. They're starting to get convinced, it seems, that the Spartans are never going to fight. Maybe they don't want to. And they're running low on supplies. Some of the men are going hungry. On the fifth day, Lysander hears that the commanding officer of the Athenians is a man named Philocles. Philocles is a demagogue, a blustering man. He was the one who personally chased Alcibiades away a few days earlier. Not too long earlier in the war, Philocles had persuaded the Athenian assembly to vote that every captured sailor from the Peloponnesian side should have his right hand cut off so that he could never pull an oar again. And Philocles also recently commanded that the entire crews of two captured Peloponnesian ships be thrown overboard on the high seas. This time when Philocles and the Athenians sail across and do their customary taunts, Lysander knows it's going to be different. And there are conflicting ancient accounts about what exactly happens next. But here's how it seems to have gone. The Athenians make their passes and then they sail back to their base as they have been doing for the past four days. The Spartan spy ships go back to tail them and they make sure that all disembark as usual. Now the Athenians, though, meanwhile, have been cooking up a plan of their own to try to lure the Spartans into battle. They've noticed these annoying spy boats, and this time when the Spartan spy boats creep up in view of the Athenian camp, Philocles himself puts into the water with a few Athenian triremes, and they start making for the boats in attack formation. They're thinking, well, if the Spartans see their comrades about to get sunk, they won't be able to resist helping them. They'll send a few of their own boats. Things will lead to things. The Athenians will send more of their own. 
and then a proper battle should begin at sea, at least a partial engagement, where the experienced Athenians will have the clear advantage. But it just so happened that Lysander had picked this as the day for his decisive blow. The spy boats sail back from the Athenian base to the Spartan side, Philocles and his ships behind them. But once they are in view of the Spartan camp, they raise the signal to the fleet with the glint of a hoplite shield reflecting the light of the sun. And once again, every single Spartan ship is perched at the ready. And once Lysander sees that flash of bronze, he gives the signal, and the entire armada launches into the water in a great coordinated sweep. And it was later said that on that afternoon, a pair of twin meteors could be seen in the sky above Lysander's ship, originating from behind and shooting down toward the land at Aegospotomy. Was this some sign that the fleet was being escorted by the famous Spartan twin deities, Castor and Pollux, the Gemini, the Dioscuri, sons of Zeus, born to the mythical Spartan queen Leda? Well, at any rate, afterwards, for many generations thereafter, the locals around Aegospotomy took care of a large stone which they claimed was a meteor that fell at the time of this battle, and they revered it as a divine object, and they showed it to Plutarch when he visited centuries later. When they see the full Peloponnesian armada bearing down on them, and possibly two meteors, well, Philocles and his ships flee to their own base. The Spartans are hot on their tails. Some of the Athenian boats get caught and destroyed at sea, Others make it to camp. They try to raise the signal to frantically gather the crews, get their own ships in the water. And the Athenians on shore see what's happening all too late. They manage to get a few boats into the water, but only barely. They're not ready for this. Many of the crews are in the surrounding hills already. Some rush back to help. Some of them just run away when they see the horror of what's happening. By that point, they already know how this is going to end. Lysander brings with him a large contingent of marines, hoplite warriors led by a Spartan general. And when they reach the Athenian base, they jump out and launch a vicious amphibious assault. Armored infantry spearmen versus desperate oarmen with whatever daggers or clubs they could find to hand. Some of the Athenian ships get into the water with half-strength crews, others with one-third strength. Many of the ships are still empty when the Spartans land. The Spartans fasten grappling hooks on them and tow them out to sea, so they're useless now. And Lysander overwhelms the Athenian base in a matter of minutes. And so, in 405 BC, 27 years into the greatest, bloodiest war that the Greeks had ever fought, or ever even heard of being fought among men. On this day at Aegospotomy, the hopes of the Athenian democracy ran out. By the end of the day, out of the entire Athenian fleet, at all seas and all ports, and they are all assembled there for the Battle of the Hellespont Straits, only ten escaped destruction at Aegospotomy and sailed away with their crews. 
The rest of the Athenians and their allies were either dead, surrendered, or vanished into the countryside. In the words of Plutarch, Lysander had wrought a work of the greatest magnitude with the least toil and effort, and had brought to a close in a single hour a war which in its length and the incredible variety of its incidents and fortunes surpassed all its predecessors. Its struggles and issues had assumed 10,000 changing shapes, and it had cost Greece more generals than all her previous wars together, and yet it was brought to a close by the prudence and ability of one man. Therefore, some actually considered the deed to be divine. End quote. There was no more Athenian fleet. There would be no more Black Sea grain ships coming to save them from the siege. The Athenians now had no chance. That was the reality. And Lysander was the man who had created this new reality. But would they accept it? And what would the world look like in the aftermath? These things all still had to be decided. There you have part one of Lysander. And when the dust settled here, Lysander was suddenly, conspicuously, the most powerful man in Greece. But there's no greater test of an individual's character or of the character of a state than possessing supreme power. What would Lysander do with his? And what kind of victors would the Spartans become? What would happen to the Athenian democracy? Those parts of the story we'll get to next time. If you enjoyed this, I would really appreciate if you'd go and leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's a huge help. I also put together a weekly philosophical newsletter where I bring to you the most entertaining and useful short stories, principles, and anecdotes that I find in my research. Join us as we build the new ancient future. Sign up at ancientlifecoach.com. Thanks for listening to The Cost of Glory. Stay strong, stay ancient. Until next time.